Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money and Investing Show. This week we're going to look at the annual returns by sector, by market, and pick out some absolute hot stocks that have really generated incredible performance for investors. We're in an environment where superannuation funds are probably conditioning you ready to accept a low single digit return on your money and it truly doesn't have to be that way. Learning the skills of where to park your cash, how to capitalize on this is a crucial life skill. As always, take plenty of notes, but make sure you take plenty of action. See you on the show. Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money and Investing Show with me, your host, Andrew Baxter, and as always, my offsider and co-host, Mitchell Laurential. Pleasure to be here, AB, and I'm really excited about this because we're literally going to be talking about where the money's been made this year. And our gig in money and investing is making money for our clients, which, you know, some of the sectors and stocks we're about to mention as the best performers in 2023 mm-hmm. have been some trades that we've had this year. So title of this episode, Best Performing Sectors in 2023 and Why? Well, this is a big episode to digest. And I guess something that's really important from doing this is, okay, what we're talking about here, we're at the back end of the year, so it might date the numbers and figures a little bit. Um, But the reality is the clues for where things are going forward often sit in what's happened in the past. I know we're in an industry where past performance is no guarantee of future performance, but it's a pretty bloody good indicator of it, in all fairness. So uh, yeah, it's been an extraordinary year. And I think probably more than anything, it's been a year where there's been a massive fundamental disconnect between literally fundamentals and what markets have done. It's very much been a technical traders uh, market, which has been uh, a great skill set for you guys, particularly given the technical leaning uh, in our trading team here. Um, but yeah, from a fundamental perspective, it's been a massive disconnect. So we've been you know, concerned about interest rate rises, inflation, uh, a war in the Ukraine, a war in Gaza uh, and Israel, and, and a slowing economy. Uh, and yet what we've seen come out of that are movements in markets and sectors that you really wouldn't expect to see. That's right. Well, let's kick off with things because, I mean, let's face it, unless you've been living under a rock, everyone knows that the NASDAQ has been where the money has been this year. Absolutely. Was it plus over 40%? What are the, I don't know, have a specific uh, 46% for the NASDAQ year wow. today, as of the time of this recording. Mm. Look, I mean, in any year, that's that's hassle that's a lot. times. Uh, and I guess the, the pain factor, and we'll have our usual, you know, keyboard warrior critics that come out and comment on these things. Um, in a year where I suspect you're going to see the Australian superannuation industry come out with figures of maybe six, maybe seven percent, maybe a little bit less for for for, for industry supers and the like, you know, a return of forty six percent sounds incredible, and I guess it is. I mean, that is a an incredibly strong year. We haven't seen that replicated across the broader market. The S and P will be about half that. Yeah, nineteen point seven percent for the S and P, and then looking at the Dow, nine point three. Right. So for a lot of people, perhaps looking at this, going, why such a massive discrepancy between the the, the markets? And in the first instance, if you were to compare the Dow Jones, which is the index that most people are familiar with, it only has thirty constituents. Um, and the S&P 500, no surprise, 500 constituents. And then when we look at the NASDAQ, there's a thousand in there. So, you know, the reality is that um, you've got that level of diversification, but perhaps more importantly with the Dow, they're old school businesses. Um, you know, the, the, I'm not going to say the dinosaur businesses, but the traditional bastions of the US economy of old, whereas the NASDAQ, by contrast, has got much, much more com- uh, exposure to technology and new economy type businesses. And that's really where the money's been made this year, particularly. So on the first brush, that's why there's a big discrepancy, if you will, between those indices uh, and the way that they've performed. And secondly, that's why you don't use the Dow as your benchmark. It's too narrow a benchmark. S&P 500 or the uh, NASDAQ are probably the better two to use. That's right. And Little do people realize the NASDAQ is literally just the S&P 500 excluding financials. So it's amazing when you take out 
financials and replace them with some of these IT slash small speculative areas, stocks of the market, how well they did. Speaking of which, let's look at some sector performance now. So if we dive a little deeper into this, I mean, coming in at number one, information technology up 51% for the year. So stonker, uh, which Crazy. is just uh, insane when you when you think about it. And yeah, the, what we've seen this year, and we've talked to this several times in the podcast, is a narrowing of what we call the market breadth. In other words, a healthy market is driven by, you know, you're not going to have all sectors performing well because that simply doesn't happen, but a broad range of different types of businesses doing very, very well. This year, you could throw a blanket over the areas. Obviously, tech has been one, and we'll get onto the consumer in a moment, um, where that's been an exceptionally strong performer for, you know, technology leapfrog breakthroughs through the year, particularly you know, artificial intelligence, which we'll dive into extensively. So whilst it's been a very, very strong year, it's been across a very narrow number of stocks. Uh, and that historically, when you look at the fundamentals of markets, is usually a sign of considerable concern and possible weakness coming up that the whole market's been driven like that. That said, as I said right at the top of the broadcast, this podcast um, and, and, and this year um, has been one where fundamentals have really discounted themselves from events that have happened. So yeah, narrow market breadth with not too many stocks driving the performance, normally a sign of weakness, but heck, it's been driving this market in a way that's been very different to what we've seen in previous cycles. That's right, and a lot of these tech companies people forget too, is particularly the the better performers, your Googles, Facebooks, or Meta, as I should say, Mm They're big companies with big amounts of cash in the bank. They've got really low debt. So they're, you know, some of those stocks are relatively insulated to interest rate rises, which has been a great thing for them. And that's right. And I think the, the, the shift, I suppose, when you talk about technology is that these are now commodities. They're commodity companies. Their commodity is eyeballs. Uh, effectively search engine traffic or advertising revenue from people watching the content. So in a way, it's a commoditization of technology. It's not like back in the day, we'd have the likes of Hewlett Packard or IBM, which you would have seen lurking in the Dow. Um, They're businesses of yesteryear now compared to the behemoth organizations that literally are are masters of the universe, it would seem. That's right. Data is almost the most valuable commodity in the world right now. Mm. Coming into number two, though, AB, change of pace, up 47% year-to-date is communication services. Yep. Why? Look, people, we're in a digital world. We've had work from home. Those are two things that I think have really um, driven that sector uh, along. Normally, and and I'll be very interested to dive a little bit deeper to see which were the actual stocks that contributed to that because, again, communications back in the day you'd think would be, oh, that's a telephone company. Yet if you look at the likes of Telstra in Australia or AT&T in the US, they're businesses that have been laggards for 20 years. So they're not the ones driving the growth in the marketplace. It's new communication techniques that fit today's world. And again, there'd be an overlap with the NASDAQ representation in there insofar as it's not old school phone, it's more broad-based technology. And when you look at companies that really, I guess, saved the day during the pandemic, like Zoom, uh, or, or which, you know, if you compare that to Skype, which was, oh, I use Skype, and no one really uses Skype no. now, it's now Zoom, and I'm sure there'll be something else that comes along. These companies have really redefined the way that we we communicate. Yeah, you know, and I suspect that this is going to continue to be a growth area. If you look at, say, Starlink, for example, uh, and the impact that that's likely to have uh, on growth, like, I'm guessing, and I'm I'm not privy to this, but it'd be very interesting. We've mentioned this in a previous podcast that Starlink's game plan is to be the provider of low altitude satellite coverage across the globe. 
And over a period of time, they become the communications provider for the planet. In other words, instead of having to have a phone plan uh, in Australia with Telstra, uh, or if you're in the UK with British Telecom, or if you're in the US with AT&T, you can have a global plan where you don't have an area or country code, and you can just dial up VoIP services with a very reliable broad-based coverage at, at pretty low prices. And you can kind of see where that's going, which I guess is a, a real pressure of new technology and new communications over the old guard. And let's face it, the old guard have done nothing uh, to, to garnish their success insofar as they've had a mo monopoly forever and they've not really capitalized on it by holding on to their old business models. So that's one I reckon is is got huge scope. Looking further forward, you know, and specifically in that communications space. Yeah, as you know, I'm a big investor in India right now and I've been, you know, for about a year or so where we see this huge surge in growth in the Indian economy. And the research I've been looking at would suggest that within the next three years, India will be the world's largest cell phone market because you've wow. got this rump of people, 300 million people that live below the poverty line, $5 a day, whose income over the next two or three years is going to double to $10 a day. And you and I both know that's, that's you know, you can't get by on 10 bucks a day, you certainly can't here. But that's a doubling of the wealth of 300 million people, it's a which lot of is money. enormous. And, and that will propel through, not to iPhones, but to lower cost phone services. And if you're a company that's able to uh, hook up you know, one of the world's largest democracy and with the rest of the world, then, well, that'll be quite something to see. So you can understand why communications has done well. It is ultimately been the saving grace, I think, of you know, what we've had in the pandemic and the post-pandemic world. Very nice. Well, look, coming in at number three, probably to our biggest surprise, as you mentioned, the disconnect was uh, consumer discretionary, up 34%, more than that actually, year to date. Mm. Crazy. You wouldn't expect that with a struggling consumer. That's right. Again, there's a disconnect between the fundamental headline and the reality of what's been going on. And as we've moved into a higher interest rate environment, and we're, we're talking specifically the US with these performance figures, but let's not lose sight of the fact that the interest rate hikes in the US have been even more aggressive than what we saw here in Australia. And, and you know, it's put the consumer on its haunches to an extent, or at least it appeared to, as they tried to rein in inflation. Got a very strong jobs market there. I think the one thing saving the US, which we've talked of again previously compared to Australia, is that the US learned an awful lot of lessons after the GFC way back in 2008, uh, where you had you know, a very damaged property market. You could buy a property on a credit card, it makes it did that, given buy half a dozen properties on a weekend, um, is that that vulnerability to interest rates and property cycle, uh, they wanted to manage it out. So most people in the US have a 30-year fixed mortgage. And with interest rates being as low as they've been, locking in a 30-year fixed mortgage means that even though rates have gone up, you've been impervious to that, yep. leaving you money to spend. It's 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 quite crazy, and you look at say spending for example over Black Friday, Cyber Monday, it's record, right? So Cyber Monday was a record. There was around sixteen point one million US dollars spent every minute on Cyber Monday. I think it was the biggest Cyber Monday ever. Black Friday was also you know up a lot from where it was the mm. year prior. And, Billions. And again, that's a surprising thing with the US economy at this stage of the cycle. We think of oh, easing into recession, which was the talk, you know, 12 months ago, the US going into recession. Then it was a soft landing, and now it's just, well, yeah, neither. It's neither. Uh, it's thumping along. Keep flying. Um, and, 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 and really, really interesting to see that. Not what you would expect. And, and new pages to be written in the playbook of how to trade these markets as we move into the year ahead that the ordinary markers that you would have looked at in the past um, are kind of a long way away from where economists seem to uh, to behave now when, when these sort of economic events happen. So big learning curve for everybody. Indeed. 
Let's get stock specific now, AB. Let's get to the crux of this episode. Mm -hmm. So coming in at number one, two, mm -hmm. no surprise, we have NVIDIA yeah. up over 220% for 2023 as it stands right now. Talks of artificial intelligence, crazy. Bonkers. I mean, just beggar's belief. And you know, NVIDIA, if I remember rightly, their sort of history is in the games chip console space, and chip, yeah. chip space for games uh, and so on. Uh, and they've parlayed right in front and center to be the leader, I suppose, in the AI trend. And the notion of AI, you know, if you remember the movies Terminator, you know, the great before series. before my time, I think. Look, I think you could get it on video. <laughs> Video? What's a video? Betamax, you wouldn't have heard of that one. Um, but, you know, those sort of uh, movies talked about, you know, this this notion of machine learning, uh, which at the time was science fiction, a little like Maxwell Smart talking into his his shoe phone, uh, which we now have mobile phones. So, I mean, you know, things that we see in movies and TV catch up to reality. And AI, that machine learning type stuff, uh, has been a game changer. And it's one that I think everybody approached, uh, a lot of people looked at, I think, you know, as... Oh, this is something to be nervous of. In actual fact, it's where we're going to start to get productivity efficiency again. And I mean, that, for example, if we look at the Australian economy, which is you know, really struggling right now, and there's been no productivity gains despite higher wages, AI is a way that you're going to see that come through. And so for companies that are well positioned to implement that, and of course, NVIDIA is at the, right at the coalface of that in that it provides the backbone, if you will, for AI. As that becomes uh, more accepted and more applied mainstream, and most businesses are starting to apply it because it's one of those things, if you don't, you'll be gone. That's right. Um, yeah, the, the growth pattern there is, is is crazy. And the advantage that they've got is that they don't have to reinvent the wheel. They're just providing the materials that everyone needs in order to uh, to kick into AI. And you, know, you look at ChatGBT, which, of course, was banned in some schools and universities, and oh, it's this bad thing for plagiarism. Uh, look, it is. But then if you look at the way that it's, it's technology it's is able to assist, if you're in a business that relies a lot on repetitive tasks, take lawyer, for example, where you're writing a case app, um, you know, putting in the marker points on there or accounting work where, you know, the language of accounts is global. It's just the numbers that really shift and the regulation and the market shifts. You can program that up to do the work for people uh, and get the heavy lifting done, you know, ultimately at a lower cost point for the consumer who's more cost savvy these days. And it's a win for everybody, albeit apart from the employee that's not showing any productivity gains. That's right. Anything that can improve business efficiency is a good thing. Speaking of which, coming in at number two, we have Meta Platforms. So Meta, mm. formerly Facebook, social media giant. I mean, they've got huge market share, Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, also diving into the AI space as well and up 171% for the year. It's been an incredible ride. And I think, you know, we saw Facebook uh, grappling with its metaverse that it was talking about a little while ago, the spend factor was absolutely enormous. And I guess AI has come in now to be the champion of where the earnings growth for that business is going to be. Yeah, there's also a lot of concern about slowing advertising spend on the way into a recession, which failed to materialize. And so uh, good for, for Meta because really, where else do you go? And it's always interesting. I mean, Friday night in my life is is, 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 is punctuated by some entertainment. So on Friday night, I get some comments for this live, I'm sure. Um, you get the naysayers that have maybe had a few drinks and they're pretty cranky about how rubbish their life is and they just want to get onto social and troll and do all that sort of stuff. And uh, yeah, and it, it provides a great platform for that, for those guys to have a bit of event, but advertising on social, you know, the usual, oh, why would you advertise on Facebook? Who'd take investment advice from someone on Facebook? Quite simply because that's where everyone is, including you that's typing the message. You know, if you run an ad in more traditional financial channels, uh, you know, the Australian Financial Review, for example, or Money Magazine, or any of these sorts of things, the readership is so relatively low, 
that there's just no point. And so they have cornered the market for eyeballs and they've turned it into a commodity. Uh, obviously, things that have changed in the back end with the algorithms over the past, uh, you know, over the last five or six years about trying to be specific with your market audience and, and so on have shifted a little bit, but AI could be the game changer they're looking for again. So that's, a, that's something I'm looking at with great interest on. I have a love-hate relationship with Facebook and I spend a lot of money on it. Uh, I don't use it personally, to be honest. I'm, I'm barely on it. It's not my thing. It's not my jam. I don't, don't really want to do that. But from a business perspective, you have to be there. That's right. Okay, coming in at number three, the third best stock performer this year mm. is, once again, a surprising one, Royal Caribbean Cruise Line. So, <laughs> cruise ship operator. How about that? 117%, super spicy stock. We've had some trades in that sector. Carnival Cruise Lines mm. is, a, is a main competitor there. Yep. The cruise ships, they were slammed through COVID and they were a massive value play post-COVID mm. and recovering really nicely at the moment. Great ETF as well. Boat is the ETF, B-O-A-T. Okay. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, they're just a value play insofar as the cruise line industry was effectively bankrupt during COVID. And at, at bargain bargain basement, you know, discount valuations. What's particularly interesting is that if you think about the demographic on a cruise, now I've only ever been on one cruise in my life, which I sincerely hope will be the last one. Um, not my thing. Uh, and that's enough. okay. That's my, okay. Fa- my father loves them and, and a lot of people that are devotees uh, to that particular place do. Um, and clearly there are millions and millions of them. The demographic that it would appeal to, particularly older people, it's a safe and easy way to travel. If I talk to my dad, I mean, I love travel and I always have. And chatting with the old man uh, the other night, we had a beer, he's over from the UK, and I was like, what do you love about cruising? He said, it's just easy. I get on, somebody takes my bag on, it's safe. There's no crime on board effectively. I'm gonna have a few beers. I can, if I wanna get off the boat and go to a port and look around somewhere, I can. Uh, and if I don't, I don't have to. He likes dancing, so you know, I can use the entertainment and all the rest of it, and that's perfect for him uh, at his age. Uh, as I say, not for me, uh, but you know, maybe one day when I'm older, that might perhaps be my thing. But what we lose sight of is where's the money in the economy right now? And there's an awful lot of, I guess, undercurrent in Australia right now that, oh, it's those damn baby boomers that are causing inflation and causing all the dramas. Well, not really. They're the people that worked hard, saved their money, invested it well, and now are enjoying travel as opposed to front-loading their life with travel and then having no money for the majority of it. And so you've got a situation where you've got a wealth explosion in that demographic that can afford to pay silver seas. And when we talk about cruising, you know, you talk about carnival and uh, and um and um, and Royal Caribbean, you know, when you compare Silver Seas, yeah, which is like a, I guess, an even more luxurious way of doing that kind of thing. There's a huge market of cashed up baby boomers that can go spend whatever and go and do Antarctica or do whatever they want to do. Interestingly, this is a big fundamental, so we are going to weave some element of fundamentals in this. Who would have thought? Passport applications in the US at an all-time high. People are ready to travel again. The golden age of travel is here. So I suspect airlines, JETS being a good ETF, boat being the ETF for cruising, individual stocks. I don't think they've just done their thing. I think there's a decent long-term earnings trajectory there for those stocks. So while they've had a very, very strong run this year, I don't think it's going to be a pop and drop because I think there is a wave of uh, of actual fundamental support behind this beyond just evaluation where those boomers continue to spend and good luck to them. I hope they do too because uh, they reckon it's going to be the biggest shift in wealth uh, is this intergenerational wealth transfer as baby boomers start to die and pass it on to their next of kin and kids um, who may or may not have the skill set to uh, to better manage that. So I say go blow it, enjoy it, spend it, you've earned it and uh, people need to fend for themselves. Very nicely said. As we can see some great money made, great opportunities this year. Mm. Thank you very much for your insight Amy. My pleasure. Anytime, Mitch. There you have it, guys. Make sure you give us a review and a rating, and we'll look forward to hosting you next week.